Hello and welcome to another Comedian's Interview for my blog, A Rich Comic Life. My name is Richard Gill and my blog describes my experiences of watching over 800 stand-ups and counting over the last 46 years. My guest today is the brilliant comedian, Mr. Kevin Day. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> Hello, Go mate. On. How are you? I'm welling just the, the sound of applause. I've, I've missed that so much. Oh my God! Oh, happily in the in the old days, the sound of one person clapping in a room would have been a terrible thing. But this now, yeah, that's one. It's wonderful just to hear any sort of applause at all. Thank you. I'm well, Richard. Thank you so much for asking me. It's very kind. Absolute pleasure. I uh, the honour is all mine, my friend. Um, thank you so much for doing this. We're going to talk about your career in comedy, and I'd like mm. to go right back to the start and ask you, how did you become a comedian in the first place? Well, I had no ambitions whatsoever. There was no showbiz in my family. There was, I'm from an Anglo-Irish family, so there was a lot of humour about, there was a lot of jokes, but I, I never had any any interest in, in comedy. And I'm, I'm never quite sure, I believe, comedians who say at the age of seven they were watching telly learning how to become comedians. I just don't... <laughs> It's like when people say to me, who is your favourite comic when you were seven? It's like, who's got a favourite comic when they're seven? It just, um, but in, in the early in the early 80s, off the back of punk, when alternative comedy was was taking the place of, of music in South London, a lot of music venues closed down and were replaced by comedy venues. We started going to one in particular, Banana Cabaret in, in Ballon. Well, uh, yeah. So seven or eight of us would go on a, on a, a Saturday night. And I, I didn't, I would enjoy it. But I was the one who I wasn't. I wouldn't say I critiqued it, but I was also the one who would kind of go three quid for this, <laughs> really, for listening to some middle class kid wank off about how tricky his life is. Is like, <laughs> and, it, and it, it eventually, eventually, basically, to shut me up, my, some friends of mine organised an open spot for me, um, and they they surprised me with this knowledge. They said, "Look, you see how clever you are and how funny you are." Uh, and they booked me an open spot at the Meccano Club in in Camden, right. which which I duly did. And I was I was nervous, but I wasn't terrified because I was going to do it once and get it over with, just yeah. to show him I could do it. And then it, it didn't occur to me that I'd ever do it again. And it it went it went well enough. Um, it was compared by the much missed. Uh, James Macabre. I was going to say I nearly said much loved, but much loved would have been an exaggeration. <laughs> uh, I loved him, but not everyone else did. Um, <laughs> and it, it went, it went, it was, it was fine. It went. Uh, I, I'd cobbled together um, uh, an act, a five-minute act. It went well enough for the the chap who ran it, a chap called Mark, who unfortunately is also no longer with us, to save John to come back and do another five minutes. So I went, no, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm done. And he said, no, just come back and do another five minutes. So. I went back into another five minutes and I was I was intrigued by it enough so that over the next couple of weeks at Banana Cabaret I started watching the acts with a different sort of perspective um, and then I started talking to Bob Boyton because until then I, I just thought you had to be and there was no working class chip on my shoulder involved I, I just thought you had to be either a drama student or, or a graduate to be a comedian is like acting. Whereas I met Bob Boyton, who was very much not a drama student or a comedian. Bob was a, a bisexual Stalinist whose whose act was a, 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 a earthy, to say the least. His, his, his catchphrase involved performing a despicable sex act on the Queen Mother. So I kind of I, I kind of suddenly started to thinking this is this is actually this is actually an interesting world. It's a, it's a it's a, a more interesting world than I thought. And then. I did another open spot at the Meccano Club, the third one, and then Mark said to me, can I can I get you an open spot somewhere else? And I, I agreed to that, and then then I started to become really nervous because suddenly after four or five accidental gigs, I thought, do you know what? I'm really I'm really quite enjoying the process of, of being on stage. I, I didn't like the process of getting there yeah. and the nerves that were starting to escalate, but... I actually enjoyed being, and then even better than that, Richard, I'd enjoyed the half an hour after coming off stage. Yeah. I, I found I was enjoying more than than anything. And then just over the course of a year, I, I put together a 10 minute set. And then, and then suddenly I, I was, you know, a regular open spot. But 
I had a job at the time. I had a really good job. I'd been thrown out of university uh, at the age of 19, which destroyed my mother because I was the only one, the first one in my Irish family to go to university. And I tried to console her with the fact that I was the first one to be thrown out as well. So that was something to be proud of. And <laughs> I, I, I found myself via a variety of jobs working for the ambulance service, London Ambulance Service. And I, by this time, I had a really good job in human resources in the ambulance service. I was, yeah. quite, a senior, I was quite a senior manager. And then suddenly I found myself having to tell off staff who were coming in much later in the morning than I was because I hadn't got home till three. And then... I, I had a decision to make. I was asked to go and do the Edinburgh Festival um, to support somebody, um, and I'd already used my annual leave. So just I just oh, decided. No. I mean, this is a this is the short version of something that took two years. So and then I basically decided that that was it. I would I would leave the job and, and become a professional full time stand up comedian, thus breaking my mum's heart again in the process. To be perfectly <laughs> so honest. What, so what what sort of year are we talking? What year was this? I did. Uh, I, I'm almost. <laughs> it, it comes as a, as a surprise to me to to realise how long ago it was. To be perfectly honest, this is, I mean, look at me. I mean, you're wondering <laughs> what must the portrait in my in my attic look like. But I did my first open spot in in 1985. Wow. Um, and a couple of years after that, myself and James Macabre and Mark Thomas were on the front cover of Time Out. Uh, being labelled yeah. as the, we were being labelled as a third wave of alternative wow. comedy, which which was an honour, but still hadn't quite worked out who the first and second wave <laughs> was. But I I was I was lucky. It was a time. I, I think if I'd got interested in comedy a little earlier than that, when it was still just kicking off, I wouldn't have started it. I think if I'd come along a little later than that, when it was becoming the new rock and roll, I probably wouldn't have started off. But I was oh, I was twenty, so I was twenty. I just turned 24 when I did my my first open spot, um, well, I, which would be um, considered old now. <laughs> I was at Carlisle College in 1985, and then I went right. to Stoke to do business studies. Okay, right. And uh, I came to London in 1992, but my brother was still here. Yeah. My brother was here about the late 80s, and that's when I first went to the comedy store. Right. And the first acts I saw were... The first bill was something like Steve Gribbin, John, wow. Malone, John Maloney was yeah. um, MCing, um, Phil Jupiter was on it, Linda Smith was on oh, it, God, dear old God, Linda. God bless and, her, yeah. Yeah, and um, top of the bill was somebody called Charles Fleischer, who was this mad American I, with I remember um, he used to tear up used to, thing. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was never heard of again because he yeah. went off to voice Roger Rabbit. Yeah. That's where he made his money. Yeah, so <laughs> was that in... in I saw him. In in Stoke, Richard, was that North Staffs Poly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I did um I did a gig there one night with with Nick Hancock. It it, it took us about three days to get home because we fell in with <laughs> we, we fell in with some local lads basically. Yeah. Well, at, at college, I saw Ben Elton, I saw Smith and Jones. They were brilliant. You? They were really wow. good. Yeah. Um, so Rowan Atkinson. We saw Julian Clary. We saw, um, but they were all um, big names at the time playing yeah. theater, playing theatres in the city. So I lived. I lived in Hanley, and uh, um, I, I remember we uh, there was a record shop there called Mike Lloyd Music, which is long since gone. Yeah. And uh, Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson were making an appearance there, and you couldn't get in. And I really? saw him go in and come out again. I saw mm -hmm. Rick Mail later on in Carlisle on his own, and he was one of the best gigs I've ever seen. I it was extraordinary. It, it, it's interesting you talk about Ben Elton. I, I like I like Ben as a person. Yeah. But I think he still, he somehow became associated, not with the mainstream, but he was never quite taken as seriously yeah. as he should have been because of the whole glittery suit stuff. But he was a fantastic live comedian. Oh, he was. I mean, um, when, when I was at college, you could see him checking his watch for the time he was doing, and it was all yeah. about student life. Yeah. And then I saw him again in Carlisle, and it was all about... Um, uh, all about that area of the country so he yeah, was yeah. changing his act as he went yeah. on and he, he was extraordinary he did about three hours it yeah. was amazing yeah. but then TV got him and you know all the rest of it and whatever but um, you know I think that's how they go um, so, so you've described your you've described your first gig hmm. um, uh, and 
from that, what do you like to talk about generally on stage? Is there a theme at all? Or I've always uh, I've always liked to be topical uh, and political where possible. Yeah. There's, there's a kind of I'm very proud to have been part of the alternative comedy scene, and I still is, uh, think of myself as I always put the alternative in front of comedians yeah, still great. in my own head. But people tend to look back a little bit at it with rose-tinted glasses because it it wasn't all political, topical comedy. We weren't all struggling to bring Thatcher down. It took us 11 years, but we did it in the <laughs> end. But, yeah, you had you had people like me. Uh, you had Jeremy Hardy, Mark Steele, yeah, Tom, well, Mark Thomas. God rest Lin, soul, Lin, yeah. Linda Smith again, as you said. Yeah. But what, what characterised our circuit was was variety was difference was you know for everybody doing a, a joke about thatcher you had somebody juggling meat or or randolph yeah. the remarkable yeah. diving diving off a step ladder into a into a washing <laughs> up bowl yeah but um the difference was with us that we wrote our own material that was a big difference but i always wrote i always i always kind of i was never very good at observational stuff i was never very good at, at, at one liner so i always like to reflect what was going on in the world and i also like to talk about what was going on in the world, but through my experience. So, for example, my one of the Edinburgh shows that I think you saw, and I was a lot of it was about the NHS because my yeah. wife was being treated. So, but the one thing I've always kind of prided myself, I don't think I've ever told an actual lie on stage. I, everything I talk about happened. Yeah, right? now, obviously, that's fantastic. But obviously, as a comedian, you exaggerate, you you add things to it, you embellish, but everything. Uh, Everything did happen, you know. So all the, you know, if I if I say that I was on a demonstration and this happened, then I was on a demonstration, yeah. something like that. So that was that was always something. I was never, I always get a bit suspicious because you think there are some comedians you think they must spend a lot of time on night buses because they mean they're eating a lot of strangers on night buses. These comedians, so not that it doesn't bother me. I mean, that's, of course, comedians are paid liars, but I always prided myself on there being an element of. Of truth, and and I was, you know, it, it was the way I processed things a, a little bit. It's like if something happened to me, I thought, okay, well, I can either talk to a psychiatrist about this, or I can try and be funny about it on stage. So, but I always, I've always, I've always preferred sort of topical. I've always preferred comedy with uh, not a point as such, but I've yeah. always preferred there to be a reason for you to be saying something. Just as I've always preferred, really, much as I love. Yeah, I'm partial to a good speciality act, but to be honest, what I really prefer is is one person standing in front of a microphone, talking about their life. I don't mind how different their yeah, life is to yeah. mine, but that's that's the sort of comedy that still um, I still engage with that more than than anything else. To be perfectly honest, because I, I, and that's partly because I can't do anything else. I can't play the guitar. I can't juggle. So I, I kind of pretend to be slightly sniffy about people who can, but. <laughs> I've always, I've always generally preferred the one person and the microphone talking about their experience. That's why, that's why people like Joe Brand and Linda were so oh, interested yeah, yeah, in yeah. because they were talking about they were talking about a female experience that most of us didn't know about. Yeah, so it's like yeah. it's just, it, it was really good to hear, and that's what I like now. I like I like learning from stand-ups as well. I like learning about different things in life, and I like I like watching the stand-up and going, oh, I wonder if that's true, and then going to discover it. Yeah, but. Uh, so yeah, I've always so to answer your question, and again, you've, you'll have discovered that I, <laughs> you you ask a perfectly valid question, and I write you an essay. But yeah, so it's all, <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> it's always, so so I've always I've always kind of talk, tried to talk about my own life. It's and, in, it's interesting because my dad's legacy, God rest his soul. My dad was a union man, and good, uh, good to he, hear, yeah. he he his legacy was um, he was president of Nalgo in 1984. Was he really? And then uh, Nalgo create uh, part created Unison, and it was yeah, his legacy that, that that Unison came along. And uh, I can remember that um, we used to go on holidays as a family when I, when I when I was very small. And the first act I ever saw was Les Dawson. At wow! Wow! Really? You saw Les and Dawson then, live? And then Tommy Cooper as well. It was wow. extraordinary. And I thought there's something here, and I, and I can remember. The whole family laughing at Morecambe and Wise and Christmas and all the rest of it, and, yeah. and I thought I'd love to see them, and I never got chance to see them. Do, do you know that's that's really well. First of all, it's really interesting the Nalgo reference because yeah. when I left the ambulance service, I was I was part of the industrial relations team, right. part of the negotiating team, and and Nalgo was one of the unions that we yeah. negotiated with. And it's 
it's where I first met Jeremy Corbyn because he was the regional convener of Newpee at yeah, the time. So. Yeah. But that's that's really interesting, your your memories of watching. Because if you were to say to me, as you might, you know, who, are you, who are your favourite, who are the comedians you remember as a, as a kid? The one that stands out for me is is Benny Hill because my wow. dad, but, my, but only because my dad loved Benny Hill. Yeah. <laughs> and and as, a, as a kid, same as, same as Laurel and Hardy, I still love it. And as a kid, you're not, you're not entirely sure why your dad's laughing so much, yeah, but, you yeah, think, yeah. but you think I'm really enjoying being with my dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Watching him I laugh, think, so and you I think laugh. That's so it's part that. of it. You, you know, yeah. you, we we are a, we were a very close family. I lost my mum mm. about eighteen months ago. Oh, I'm sorry and, to hear that. Uh, thank you, and I'm very close to my brother. And and I think we are. I think it's part of it as well because we all enjoy comedy. My my mm. dad, my dad was very private, but he he. Um, he would always, if he found something funny, my God, he had a laugh on him. And really? I think, I think that's where yeah. I got mine from. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I always remember we went to see Tom O'Connor at Paynton in, in the yeah. 70s, and I laughed so hard at him, it actually flawed his act because he couldn't believe I was laughing <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> so hard. <laughs> and I thought, thank God for him, you know, I should trademark it. Anyway, yeah. um, it's not about me, it's about you. Uh, to date, what has been your worst gig in your long career? Um, I'm, I'm amazed you have any bad gigs because I think you're a very funny I, man. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, any any comedian, Richard, who tells you that they've never had a bad gig from from the is is lying. <laughs> um, and in in the same way that any because I always uh, people often say to me because I I can come across as like modest and self-effacing. And people will often say to my wife, oh, I like, you know, the thing I like about Kevin, he hasn't got an ego. And she'll just look at them and go, <laughs> he, he, he very much has got an ego. And it's difficult for Ali now, my wife, because, you know, my son's a really good comedian now he as well. Is. So yeah. when, we, when we could still perform live, Ali's nightmare was that we would both turn up at the same time after a gig full of testosterone, just telling her how good we'd, we'd gone. But every, and the ego comes into it because in the first two years of being a comic, none yeah. of us are very good. But yeah. still, we but still we get up on stage and, and insist that we can perform to to strangers until we become good. But I do, I remember, I, I do remember my worst gig because it kind of really derailed me in a sense because that period I've told you about when the first sort of year eighteen months when it, it was all coming not easily, but people were asking me to do stuff and and my my first open spot at John Glers. And I, I grew to love performing at John Glers later on. I really used to love performing at John Glers because yes, it was a yuppie paradise, but I found you could talk about anything there as long as you were funny, basically. But my first open spot there, it just, the first two minutes was fine, but then it just started to drift off and I couldn't, wow. I couldn't get it back. And it was my first experience of that actually happening. And of course it was by far the biggest audience I'd ever had 300 people was like, like almost 10 times as many people as, I, as I'd performed in and it was it was it was horrible it really was horrible and, and I still remember there's a comic now I won't name him but he's still a household name who was quite spectacularly cruel to me afterwards wow really unsympathetic because it's um it's it's a very long walk into the dressing room when you've, when yeah, you've yeah, not yeah. done very well uh, but the odd thing is that I learned I learned from it because the guy, John Davy, the guy who ran Jonglers, he'd given me two open spots. He said, I want you to do the second one. But he just said to me, look, your your problem is, and he was absolutely right. He said, because I used to stand in front of the microphone and it looked like I was reading an autocue in my own head. It, I, I didn't engage with the audience. I looked straight ahead a bit. Uh, the way Steve Punt used to do with yeah, Hugh yeah. with looks. So I used to look straight ahead. And, if, and it looked like I was reading the inside of my own eyelids. So that, <laughs> and, and if... And that was fine in a small room with 30 people, but in, in at John Glers, when half the audience could only see the side of you and you weren't turning, he said, once you lost them, you, you're, you're never going to get them back. So that was a really, that was a really sanitary lesson. And that was, it, it's probably still my worst experience because it's... <clears throat> but I think, I think because every comedian has to go through that it makes them a better comedian if they have a bad gig it, it, it does and i'm not i'm not going to pretend that's the only yeah. awkward gig awkward gig i had because we all have gigs that you should never have they're normally corporates you all have gigs that you should never have taken <laughs> but it's um uh it, it, it 
it, it was a salutary lesson and it, it, it did change the way I performed, but it probably yeah. took me six months for the lesson to fall in. Because also, I, I also realised that I was going to have to go through another difficult year to get good. I realised how, how far behind the rest of the comedy circuit I was because there's a magic moment as a comedian. The first time when you you don't get a laugh and it doesn't bother you is a magic moment. The first time you don't get a laugh that you get a laugh by acknowledging that you didn't get a laugh. So it's like now on stage, if I don't get a laugh, I'm perfectly happy because then <laughs> I will just berate the audience for not getting the joke. <laughs> and let, and let, so, but, that, but, that's, but that's a brilliant thing to learn. Once Straight, you can... Yeah. Once you can show the audience that you're not terrified, even if you are terrified, once you can show that you're not, that's a brilliant place. That's yeah. when you're starting to arrive as a as a comic. That's when you look like you're completely in charge, even though inside you're, the alarm bells are ringing, you're scrambling around, every instinct <laughs> is to get out of there, but you're, but you're still just... And that's that's a good moment. But it did... I, that was a lonely night. I, 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 it was a horrible night, but it... In, it as you say, we all have to go through that to become better comedians. There's no doubt about that. It's interesting because uh, the blog obviously celebrates um, all the comedians that I go and watch, and I, mm. I, I love the experience of it. I hope I'm passionate about it, and it's, mm. uh, the whole thing is 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 wonderful. But um, one year, I've told this to many a comedian, uh, one year I got it out of my system, and I, and I thought I've got to have a go at stand-up comedy. And I was at the Edinburgh Fringe and I knew the bloke who run the free fringe. And he said, yeah, yeah, he said, go on a Monday afternoon to the Haymarket. Um, there's a there's a gig for old, with old folk in the in the crowd. It's a gong <laughs> show. And, and have you got a script? And I'd written this script about me crashing cars in Carlisle because I was never a very good driver. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really funny. And I walked out. There was three people in the crowd. And I walked out and the first line was, uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. People think I look like Eddie the Eagle Edwards, but I can't <laughs> see the resemblance myself. And one old bloke at the back just went, fuck off, and me <laughs> off. <laughs> and oh, well. so the promoter went, have another go, have another go. So uh, the same thing happened. And, and, I, and I thought, no. And I said to him, I said, never say never again, but uh, my place is in the audience uh, supporting everybody I call them fearless heroes who have to go out and, and do this, you know. And and it's wonderful to... I love watching... You're a classic example of somebody develop because um, I first saw Harry Hill 30 years ago and he's still yeah. going and on and on and on, you know. Um, how do you remember all your routines when you're on stage? Do you know what, Rich? That's a really... That's a really interesting question. I... Um, a couple of Edinburghs ago, I was I was chatting to a friend of mine, uh, an actor, and I and I told him about and this is true. This is an ambition. I I, I said like one day I would love to play some of the smaller comedy Shakespeare roles. I'd love to play wow. Dogberry in, in Much Do About Nothing, or I'd love to play Andrew, you know, or the the Shepherd in the Winter's Tale. And he said, Why don't you? I said, Well, I I, I couldn't. I just can't get dialogue and speeches in my head. I can't remember them. He said, But I've just seen you do. A seventy-five minute monologue, essentially, and it's it's an interesting because I can't remember. I, I'm, I love to I love to quote Shakespeare, but I, I'm, I'm out after the first line. I can't remember. Wow. It's, it's, it's the same as song it's lyrics. I remember the, isn't it? Yeah. it is. I, I know the first two lines of millions of songs, but beyond that, I can't remember the rest of them. And I, 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 I think <laughs> it, I don't know what what the process is. I think what it is as well is it it, it doesn't matter if a comedian forgets his lines in the same way that an actor does because if an actor forgets his lines it derails the whole play and an actor can't can't go from uh, to be or not to be is this a dagger i see before because the audience are going to go hang on he's just got two plays mixed up then. Because, <laughs> a, a, because a comic if a comic if you're if you're doing an edinburgh show and you you kind of go oh hang on what's next you can either say to the audience do you know what i can't i really can't remember what's next yeah yeah and make a laugh about it. Or you can go on to something and then come back to it. But but with me, I find it, because I like to structure my shows, because I always like, God, I mean, how Tim Vine can remember oh. 121, because they're all in the right order as well. How, yeah. Tim, how Tim Vine can do that, I don't know. But because once I've started, I know pretty much where I'm going, if you see what I mean. I know the kind of route map, and I can meander my way through it mm. and take detours, but I know that I will get back... 
and because I like to structure, uh, one thing normally leads to another. So I kind of, I kind of know where I'm going. So I've never struggled with with retaining my own set, and because I, I always, I, I, again, I don't, I don't believe a lot of comics who say I just turn up at the venue. I get up on stage. I say the first thing that comes into my head. I don't. I genuinely don't believe them. I think there might be one or two people that have got a kind of jazz musician mind who can do that, but I can't do that. I have to. I have to have five pieces of paper. It's yeah. like. Um, I think. I think two, it's two days. I think it's two, interesting. Richard, yeah. Because um, uh, if if you're writing your own stuff, you may yeah. remember it because it's a play. I, it's somebody else's words. I think I think that's a very I think that's a very good point because yeah. and, and also because it's your own stuff, you've got the right to mess with it as much as you want when yeah. you do it. Because it's interesting. I think most comics would admit the best things they write happen on stage when the synapses are, are, yeah. are going and the energy's going and you 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 say something and in, in your head you go actually I'm going to add this and then and then you go home and you write it down then. You but what in terms of preparation, it's like you, you saw me on that Zoom gig recently. I have to start two nights before, and yeah. like, I will write. I will write what I'm going to say. I'll write. I'll, I'll, I'll think. Right, what's the new stuff I'm going to do? What's the stuff I'm going to do about the situation? What's that? And then, and I'll do a, a kind of running order, and then over the next day, I'll whittle that down to just a number of headings, basically. But if I don't do that process, I, I, I panic before I go on stage. I need, I need to do that. Like Hattie yeah, Hayridge, yeah. Hattie Hayridge always used to write her set out. Completely, she would write the whole set out completely before she went on stage. Otherwise, she she couldn't do it. And I, I genuinely think all comics, because it's a it's the professional thing to do. You should be preparing. You shouldn't just be yeah, turning yeah. up on stage going right. Let's see what's what's going to happen. Because for the most part, if you do that, nothing happens. I find, you know, it's every now and again, if I'm comparing a benefit, I might sort of relax a little bit and just go right. I'll I'll, I'll say hello and then see what happens because it doesn't matter so much because I'm comparing. But if I'm doing a set or a show. I always, I always need a structure, and that structure helps me to remember what I'm going to say. And, and as you say as well, because once you're experienced like I am, and you've got a lot of material to fall back on, it's like you kind of go, if you, you trust your mind a little bit, because you think, well, if I forget one bit, my mind will shunt another bit in, and I can come back to it. Do you know what I mean? So it's, and again, audiences don't mind, especially yeah. once you've been doing it as long as I have, and audiences kind of know you, they kind of don't mind if you say, oh, God, granddad's forgotten what he's supposed to be saying again. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but it isn't, it, it's, it's, it's terrifying for a young, when oh, you yeah. first start, yeah. when you first start, it, it, that notion of not, of, of, and sometimes you can be too structured. I, without a doubt, I was too structured when I started. Like I said, that autocue thing, it's like, if I, if I forgot one word, I was completely thrown. I had no idea what to do next. So, there's there's a happy medium, and I think I've I hope I found it anyway. Now oh, after definitely, thirty, mate, yeah. The 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 reason I asked the question is that the most creative thing I've done, other than this blog, was write a play for the Edinburgh Fringe. Oh well, brilliant! And it was going to be for the Edinburgh Fringe, but I've never pitched it there. Um, we raised a lot of money for comic relief. We put three shows on. The play brilliant. was called The Applicant, and it was basically about it's me but under another name who who's from Carlisle moves down to London has a successful girlfriend but he can't get a job and every scene is um, me in the waiting room and then me being interviewed by the interviewer for the job so when I run out I've got the audience and I start nervously looking at them and start going with a monologue which sets up the story and of course the first night after all the rehearsals I forgot the monologue oh no really <laughs> no. so it is there's something about writing words down as opposed to it not off the cuff but yeah. you need to steer yourself to a point I think and and the, the, there's there's fair case for that as well but it's fascinating it's 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 yeah. it's fascinating let's move on to Edinburgh itself I I've seen you many times in the Pleasant's courtyard for a beer just <laughs> wandering around I go to the Edinburgh festival I'm very lucky I go there every year Oh, I've been yeah. going there since 2005 and I see about 50 shows in a week. Yeah. I absolutely love it. Um, what was your first Edinburgh Fringe like? Well, can I say, Richard, that we um, we love people like you. <laughs> no, seriously, we, we, love, we love people like you that have the same enthusiasm for it. That I, I get... Oh, yeah. I sometimes get a bit cross with, with comedians, with mates of mine who... 
they'll go to Edinburgh and you'll say to them, you'll, meet, you'll bump into them at one o'clock in the morning and you'll say, what have you been to see? And they go, nothing. <laughs> I go, what do you mean nothing? And I say, you're in the middle of the biggest arts festival in the world. Half of it is free and you've been to see nothing. You you have to embrace it. You really have to embrace it. And if I, I, I've, I've got, I missed Edinburgh so much. So have I. Last year. I so missed it. I didn't think I would, because I, I, it was the first Edinburgh in 30, 25 years that I hadn't been at all in any capacity whatsoever. Because even if I'm not doing a show, and I didn't do a show for a long time, I still had a reason to go up there, whether I was directing someone or working with someone or just to watch some of Ali's shows or just to go there because I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't not be there. And I, 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 I hope, I, I describe myself as agnostic rather than religious, but if there is a heaven, it will be the Pleasance Courtyard at, at you and three, me both. three o'clock on a, on, a sun, on a sunny afternoon. Just yeah. when you're when you're just bumping into loads of people and yeah. you you just go with the flow and you just talk <coughs> about comedy and about all, all day. But my first, I, I remember going to Edinburgh for the first time, and rather bizarrely, this is why I had to leave um, the, the ambulance service. Was I got asked to support? This is how things were in those days. So this was eighty. I got asked to support uh, a Danish feminist double act. Um, who didn't know who I was and I didn't know who they were and it was in an old gymnasium uh, and I got um, a, a lift up there with a mate uh, and when I got there I discovered that they'd both gone back to Denmark because <laughs> these Danish feminists found out that one of their boyfriends had been sleeping with the other one so, <laughs> all, so, I, so I found myself in Edinburgh not having a show to do so I kind of oh, nice. wandered around for a week because I was staying on the next floor but I've, I'd, I'd never seen anything like it Oh, it's extraordinary. Never seen anything like. And bear in mind that then Edinburgh was was tiny. And then, uh, and then the next year, I I, I did a show with um, the nice people, Phil Clark and and uh, Simon Godley. Yeah. Uh, with them and Nick Hancock, and then I did a show with with Joe Brand and, and Michael Redmond, which was at the oh, Guild of Bloom, which was which was brilliant. And I, then I did a show with John Maloney, which was which was brilliant. And then, uh, 1991, I did my first full Edinburgh show, and I remember. And this is, I was at the Pleasance and I was in the third venue at the Pleasance. I was in the, this, the it was the first, upstairs and people were moaning then about the Pleasance having three venues. They're going, this has gone too far. It's gone mad. Three venues <laughs> in one in one place. But yeah, I think it's about 27 now. But I remember, I remember getting off the train and I remember going to my flat and seeing my poster. I don't think I've ever felt prouder in my life. Good I just, man. That's I brilliant. just, it was so exciting. And just, it was just feeling, because by then I was totally in love with comedy. I was yeah. just totally obsessed with it. I couldn't believe my luck that I'd found myself in this brilliant world, being creative, enjoying it with people that I still love now, and just being part of the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, because I'd heard of the Edinburgh Festival, I knew about it, mainly the, you know, you'd heard about Beyond the Fringe and things yeah. like that, but to suddenly be part of the Edinburgh Festival. And to, and my first, the first show I did, there were six people in, and three of them, it turned out, were reviewers, right? And it was it was a brilliant show, and it got really good. So by the end of it, I was selling out, albeit in a small room, and I just, it was just, and then, so then every year, Edinburgh became the focal point. You just wrote, the whole year spent writing to an Edinburgh, and I did seven one-man shows in a row. Wow. And I... I, sh I probably shouldn't have done the last one. I probably should have had a couple of years off. But then I got sidetracked by other stuff. And then it was a long time before I went back with a full-length show. But I always went back. And for me, it's the it's it's almost impossible to explain. It's like explaining football to yeah. someone who doesn't get football. You can't yeah. <laughs> you can't explain what the Fringe Festival is like until you've until you've experienced it. And it is the it's it the is. Most, I mean, it's, I just, it's just discovering. I went. Um, I remember the, one of the first years I was there, first second year did a one-man show, uh, and I was walking down the Royal Mile, uh, it was, and it was my day off, I was walking down the Royal Mile, and this young girl, was about 16 or 17, um, obviously young, gave me a leaflet for the Leicestershire Youth Theatre production of Midsummer Night's Dream, and she said, would you, would you like to see this show? And I just thought, might as well, and it was brilliant. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was young people's theatre, but it was, it was brilliant. Yeah. So I, I went back the next four years to see whatever they were doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just loved the fact that the discoveries are extraordinary. Oh, and and that, you know, half of them you're getting in for nothing, or yeah. you're paying three quid. It's yeah. like you pay three quid, and if it's no good, you've lost three quid. But yeah, yeah. just the, I, and I, I get really cross with 
and, and you know who I'm talking about, older comics who get really bitter and chippy about younger comics coming through or younger performers coming through as though it's binary, as though every new person that comes through means you have to, an old one has to disappear. It's not like that. No. And I, I love, partly because of, uh, of Ed's, my son's generation, I love mentoring people. I do a lot of it on TV shows. I love mentoring new writers, new comedians, because it keeps me involved in the circuit. But walking down the Royal Mile, and yeah, you can either laugh at all these enthusiastic kids, all right? And yeah, some of them are middle class, fine. That's, that it is what it is. You can either laugh at all these kids who are full of energy and full of life and full of enthusiasm, or you can just go, oh, brilliant, this is fantastic. This is, but you can either get bitter about it and say, I'll bugger off that to Cambridge, you little punks. Or you can just go, what, you, what is it you're doing? Tell me about your show. And, and, it's, and you've got to do that because that energy, walking down the Royal Mile, that energy is fantastic. Going to see, going to see a comedian you've never seen before, you've only heard about, and just yeah. go, oh, mate, she's good or he's good. You know. Well, the, and, amount, and, of, the mm. amount of comedians that I saw in Hutt's play about 20 people mm. and are now massive we're talking yeah. michael mcintyre we're yeah, talking yeah. sarah millican we're talking yeah. russell howard it's extraordinary yeah. but, then, but then you've got um we always go and see arthur smith we always go and see barry cryer barry cryer <laughs> i i wish i'd got a photograph with him but i did meet, I, I met him twice and uh well, I went up to him and I shook his hand. He was having something to eat, and we waited until he was he was finished eating. And he came over and I shook his hand and I said, uh, "I said, oh, I said, we're such big fans of you." And he looked at me and he grinned and he said, "You're the ones." <laughs> he's, he's, um, what a lovely man, and he's hilarious. But, but, but Barry's, it, it, there's been a couple of Edinburghs where I can only go up for like three days. And I'll always make sure it's a day that Barry's doing his yeah. show with, with Ronnie Golden Ronnie because Golden, yeah. I can, it always makes me laugh. Steve Gunnerford is a brilliant producer. Yeah, 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 photographer. As yeah. you know, he, he, looked, he looks after Barry's shows and he always says to me, how can I will sit and listen to Barry all night, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't care if Barry's telling me the same things yeah. he's told me the year before, but because this is a man who's worked with everybody. Yeah, Barry, exactly. He's worked. He's worked with Bob Hope. Yeah. He's worked with everybody. I'm perfect. Yeah. I, I'm. I'm obsessed with the history of comedy. Yeah. Barry can tell me what he wants. And I. I remember one night. It was only about two or three years ago. In fact, it was a roast for his 80th birthday. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> which was a yeah. brilliant night. And then yeah. afterwards, we were all in the loft drinking, and, and Steve Unlawful said to me, "Look, Barry's driving me up the wall. He just keeps telling the same stories." So I've come up with a safe <laughs> word. Right? I'm going to say the code word is banana. If Barry, if Barry launches into a story he's already told, I'm going to say banana. So, and then brilliantly, we're all sitting around and Barry launched into a story and Steve Oliphorn, um said, Barry, banana. And Barry went, did I ever tell you about the Irishman and the parrot and banana? <laughs> Like, he's, he's great, Barry. He's one. Arthur, Arthur again is one of the. I'm very. Uh, Arthur's I'm, been um, on this, and he was wonderful. I, I'm I'm very proud of my association with with Arthur over the years. Ali, my was she stage managed every show that I was going to say yeah, Arthur yeah. did, and she was in she yeah. was in one of the singers in the Smithereens. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm I'm very and just Arthur's. Oh, he's wonderful. His attitude to uh, there, uh, you know, his attitude to Edinburgh in particular, and it's it's just like he's. And sometimes, yeah, there's a touch of the Barry cries about Arthur sometimes. You, when you're try, trying to rehearse with Arthur, it's like <laughs> when I write and direct with Arthur, like yeah. Sid was a brilliant show. Yeah, but yeah, the, right, yeah. It's, it's, it's like trying to keep a kitten in a basket. His attention span is so short. You know what I mean? You'd be going, like, we need to get, we've got we've got two <laughs> days before Edinburgh, the show, we've got to sort it out. But it's like, as, but somehow it always comes good. But his, and it's, I, I love it takes longer to get away from an Arthur show in Edinburgh than any other show because it's his so, audience... Well, he's been going for years and but years also, and years. But also because his, his audience is one because Sid yeah. was about his father. Yeah, yeah. Half the people in the, in the audience would want to share memories of their yeah. father. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and Arthur's only too happy to... Yeah to do that but it's like I and it's, I, I seriously I get very emotional about Edinburgh I think it's and it, it looks touch wood as though there will be a festival of sorts this year and I think it will be smaller and I don't think there'll be any yeah. acts from overseas but there will be a festival but I, I can't I, I don't I, I won't truly believe all this is over until I walk into the Pleasance Courtyard exactly you again. and me both mate yeah, yeah. um I first saw your solo shows, Standy Uppy, in 2014, oh. and Hairline in 2015, yeah. at The Fringe, which I both thought were brilliant, and it was wonderful to see you. Um, 
tell me about how you get your ideas for shows well i came to be honest i got the idea of doing uh, the first one standing up here from john richardson right but indirectly because i hadn't it had been over a decade since my last full-length film show because i got sidelined distracted whatever word you want to use by tv writing and by other by other stuff and so I just hadn't had the time to come up with a new Edinburgh show. I didn't want to go back to Edinburgh unless I had a really good show and I hadn't the time to write one. And I was working with, with John Richardson and Matt Ford on, on eight out of 10 cats. Yeah. And I love both of them. I love Matt Ford to bits. Yeah, superb. Uh, he's, yeah. um, uh, again, he's, he's like working with a hyperactive toddler. It's like, don't yeah. give him sugar, whatever you do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big fan of John Richardson and yeah. we were just, we were just chatting one afternoon and Romish Ranganathan came in. So we're all, we're all chatting. I'm much older than these, these lads. It doesn't bother me a bit. It's, you know, they, they asked me questions about the Blitz and I asked them when was the last time they had an happy change, that sort of relationship. <laughs> but, but I love working with John. John takes comedy very seriously. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. We were chatting and in, oddly enough, one of them, I can't remember who had just got a new passport and we were talking about passports. And John said to me, what does it say on your, on your passport? And I said, it says comedian. And he said, but you, you don't do shows. You haven't done any. I said, well, I do. Of course I do shows. I do benefits. He said, well, you're not, you're not, you know, you're not doing one. When, when can I come and see you next? I was yeah. like, well, six weeks. Uh, and I suddenly realised there, there was a whole generation of comics who, who knew me by reputation and respected my reputation, but, but had never seen me. So I kind of thought, I've got to go back and prove to these youngsters. And by God, it, you did. Well, I'm, and I'm pleased I did because I remember Fordy and Romish came into they all came and it's like I had to I had to look them in the eye because it's like they were, I loved working with them and they knew that I was good to work with and I was you know a good obviously a very good writer and I was able to help them but I wanted to be because if if, you, if somebody says to me what do you do for a living I always say comedian that's the thing I'm most proud of all the things I've done all the broadcasting all the writing writing books all that stuff but. As in my head, I'm a comedian. I'm a stand-up comedian. That's what I do. So it was brilliant to go back to Edinburgh for three weeks as a stand-up comedian. And, and as it as it happened, uh, my wife uh, had not long before the festival been diagnosed with what we thought was uh, a terminal illness. And, and thank God, um, through thank God, yeah, the NHS saw her through it and and the, you know, she's 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 fine and the right. prognosis is fine she's great but it it's just i thought i've got that's the that's the thing that's been occupying my mind almost completely so i've got to talk about that i've got to talk about the fact that that's how again as i talked about earlier i process serious stuff through yeah, humor yeah, yeah. i've got to talk about this so that was so i knew it's going to be structured around that and then, and then basically it was a kind of, it, it was almost like, well, I've got plenty of ideas. I've been it for a long time. So I've got, I've got plenty of ideas. Can I find a theme? And then I found that I couldn't fit the ideas to the theme. So I just wrote a, a completely new show. And it wasn't, it wasn't really about anything. I, I just found, I just so loved the process of going back and doing Edinburgh previews and doing tryout nights, yeah, going to places yeah. like Old Rope. When, and these, these were things I hadn't done for a long time. And I found again that it, the, the stuff was writing itself on stage. I found that I would have an idea and I'd phone up Tiff Stevenson and say, can I come down and do, try this out? She said, of course you can. And I would try it out. But I found that whilst I was on stage, I was having other ideas and I was going home and then writing brilliant. them down. So it was, it, it was brilliant. So I can't, apart from the, the, the NHS thing, I can't really pretend that I had an idea for the show that there was a theme just for the show. from the experience just, basically, it, yeah. yeah basically and then and then i thought well i've got to go back there's no point just doing it once so i've got to go back next year and then in the meantime my mum died in the meantime so i thought well i'm gonna to have to write about this notion that my wife got better but my mum oh, died and there was yeah. there was a lot of there was a lot of catholic protestant issues around my mum dying because someone yeah. from a mixed religious family and, and I still struggle now with with the Anglo-Irish part of my identity. So I thought, well, okay, you're old enough now. You've never spoken about it before. Let's talk yeah. about that now. Yeah. So yeah. it's, but I just, I was just so excited about being alive, being alive, just brilliant, being alive, stand up again, and being because there's, 
there's yeah I love I love my friends dearly and, and a lot of my memories are about football I love I can't wait to see my my my, all, my closest mates who are all from school and from early work days brilliant I love them dearly but there's nowhere better on God's earth I'd rather be than a, a dressing room in a in a comedy venue with other comics yeah yeah yeah, yeah. just a wonderful place to be and just reminding myself of that just the love of showing off I can't put it any other way than the love of showing off I could, I could it is I, it's, it's such a drug to watch it it must well, be amazing to perform it well I'm pleased to hear you say that because yeah. I could lie I could lie and say look I've got important things to say the world needs to know my view on this but there is an element of that but no it's essentially I've it's forgotten just, how it's, brilliant it's it is wonderful thing well um, also getting that that because I suffered from quite bad so that first show I, I got really bad stage fright the week mm. beforehand to the extent that I had to talk to somebody about the anxiety I was feeling about getting back on stage and doing an error but I, I, I've, I'd forgotten how brilliant it was. that five minutes was after coming off stage and that any stage fright before it's worth it's worth the seven eight eight hours stage fright beforehand for that yeah, yeah. hour afterwards you know so it That's was just brilliant. brilliant to be part of the, the comedy scene again yeah um You've written for, amongst others, Joe Brand and Dave Allen. Mm -hmm. Tell me the differences of writing for other comedians because um, there's a section in my blog called The Ones That Got Away and Dave yeah. Allen was one who I would have loved to have seen and, and never did. I was a massive fan. It's um, How many comics listen to, your, to, listen to the blog? Uh, I well, I've got about 80,000 hits. Right, which is brilliant because I want, I want to be honest with you. There's no... Uh, working with Dave Allen was a slightly different experience because uh, when Dave did his last ITV set, and, and Dave was somebody I would happily say was a comedy idol. Not, I, I was aware that Dave Allen was different when I was growing up because he sat down for a start and he told long-form stories yeah, rather yeah. Than, than jokes. And I was aware as a youngster that he really, really upset my mother, who was a proper sabre-rattling Catholic. <laughs> And he, and he really made my dad, who was not religious at all, he was he really made my dad laugh. And one of my memories of Dave, who was the most fantastic, interesting, and occasionally curmudgeonly bloke, yeah. was that when, when my mum and dad came to see one of the recordings, my, and my mum was a big drinker, as Dave was at times, and my mum was just going to tear it. She went, well, I'm going to come. But I will sit there stony-faced, and afterwards I'm going to tell him what, exactly what I think about his... <laughs> His, his nonsense about the poet and of course he charmed her out of the trees and yeah. two, two hours later we had to drag him out but the writing for Dave was a very Dave Dave didn't need anyone writing for him but it just so happened that he did this last series at ITV he hated ITV he didn't like it at all but they said to him you've got to get a couple of younger people in a couple more relevant people yeah he didn't like that idea but we Mark Thomas and I were with the same agency and we met and he liked us and he said fine but you don't write for Dave Allen it's that, that, <laughs> It's preposterous the idea that you write for Dave Allen. You, <laughs> you, you're with him, and you might occasionally say, "Have you heard of this thing called the internet? Why don't you write about that?" But you yeah. can't write for him. And, and it's, there was one moment. There's one morning when he came in and said, "I've been working on this this routine about telling the time and teaching the time to a kid." And Mark and I, you know, left left wing firebrand comedians, Mark and I kind of looked at each other and went, "You know, good luck with that, Granddad." And of course, it's, the, it's one of the most one of the most brilliant routines ever. But I, having said that, working with... I loved writing for Joe. I've written for other comics. I was still... I was still write... Or, or rather, I'll script edit for other comics because it's not... It's not the same. It's not... It, it's it, Ideally, most comics don't really want other comics writing for them. And most comics don't really want to write for other comics yeah, because... Because yeah. I don't think... I'm very good at finding other people's voices. I'm very good at writing in, in people's voices, which is fine if you're writing for the, the, the host of I Got News For You, and it's, and it's fine if you're writing stand-up. But, you know, Joe's experience of life, we might be a similar age, but her experience of life is so different to mine that it's kind of preposterous to expect me to write jokes about her being the victim of sexist attacks or yeah, yeah. about women's health problems and mental health. And, of course, you write that, and then... But you'd never, you, I don't think you ever fully 100% commit when you're writing stuff for other people because you, you, lose, you lose control of it because yeah. 
there's also that thing you come up with an idea you think of something or you write with someone and you kind of go oh god I'd rather do that I think that suits me better than it suits him or them or or her and there's this reluctance and there's there's nothing worse I love working on I Got News For You but there's nothing worse than seeing a joke that you've loved that's gone through the whole process being completely mangled by some American actor who hasn't got a clue do you know and and it it is is, it's a frustrating performance because it comes back to what I talked about Rich about showing off it's like I want to be the one showing off and it's like yes there's a satisfaction if somebody gets a laugh on stage from a joke there's a couple of of, of lines in Sid Arthur Smith's last Edinburgh there's a couple of lines in that quite a few lines now that I wrote and that's well, that's brilliant but it's not the same as no, getting no, your own no. really isn't the same as getting your own laugh so yeah. it's it, it's a frustrating experience I'll be yeah, I mean it's, yeah. it's always it's always it's different if you're it's like with, with John Richardson for example working with him or working with Sarah Millican was a brilliant process on her TV show yeah. myself and Jeff Norcott yeah um and a, and a few others would would you know, there'd be like three or four of us with with Sarah, um, and essentially what you did was you just chatted the whole day basically whatever the theme was you just chatted the whole day and then one of the one of the people from the office would literally write everything that would would type everything down and at the end of the evening Sarah would take the iPad with her and go to a, a local comedy club and she would read out the stuff on the iPad. <laughs> Basically, and then she'd oh, make brilliant. a note. So, so that was a completely different, yeah, yeah, different way of doing it. Different and and of. and like workshopping stuff with with John Richardson. Or, or there were times when Joe Brand and I would just like chat about ideas. That's that's brilliant. That's a process I really enjoy. But yeah. actually, filling a blank sheet of paper for another comic isn't it isn't it just isn't as satisfying as as writing stuff for yourself if you think of somebody like Eddie Braben having to do it for Markham and Wise it nearly killed him well I'm not surprised as well because that's the genius of of Markham and Wise and I'm 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 like you I really I I envy the fact you saw Les Dawson live and I I saw him twice he was brilliant Markham and Wise now for me are still they're still brilliant although although my dad my dad still insists that it was Ernie that was the funny one but wow of of course but when when you're watching it as a kid when you're watching these Christmas specials with your parents it doesn't occur to you that they're not making this stuff up as they go along it doesn't occur to you because that's I don't think anybody was better than Eric Markham and Ernie Wise at delivering other people's stuff as though yeah. they, they just thought of it off the top of their head. Yeah, yeah. It, was like, it was like almost like watching Eddie Izzard. You think this stuff yeah. is spontaneous. Yeah, and as a kid, you don't really know about the recording process. But for Eddie Braben to have to write that week in, week out... Yeah. He you nearly just, killed him. I, well, he, as yeah. he famously said, and of course there was that famous occasion that you know when he when Eric, he, he heard Eric on a TV show saying that, you know, Eric, uh, Ernie, um, Eric, uh, Eddie... Get it right, Eddie you know, helped them with the writing, and, and so he just sent in a blank piece of paper yeah. for the next week's yeah, script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I mean, it's it's an art form to interpret. Oh, it's but, I mean, that's that's where I mean that's where Tony. I mean, Tony Hancock was a genius, mm. but he wasn't satisfied with interpreting Gordon and Simpson's yeah, yeah. words, and because he, he didn't occur to him that he w- he couldn't do it himself. Whereas Eric and Ernie knew they couldn't do it themselves. But but again, I don't know how Eddie Braben would would do that. I mean. He to be able to, write, to have he to, used to write initially for Ken Dodd, didn't he? And so I did turn. back in the day. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah. and funny enough, I met. Um, uh, I think it was Dick, I can't remember if it was Dick Hills. I, I don't know if you saw this show in Edinburgh a couple of years back. The the, the Morecambe and my show. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The yeah. John, which was which was brilliant, and the I can't remember if it's Sid or Dick, whichever one of them was. But Eric and Ernie's first ITV rides yeah. came to the show one afternoon, and he wasn't particularly happy afterwards because, of course, it focused on the Eddie Eddie Braben years, but. All I can say is Eddie Braben's ego must have been incredible because for him to stand there, to have all the fear and the worry of Eric not getting laughs and then none of the praise, yeah. I don't I don't see how you could do you that. Do that. How could you? I, would, I just simply, I simply couldn't do that because that's the only, one of the downsides on working on shows that have I got news for you is you never get thanked for, la- for lines that get a massive laugh, but you'll always get blamed for lines that don't get a laugh. Wow. You know, and it's it's just one of those things you put up with. But then, because you, you want to say, well, hang on a second, it would have got a laugh if I said it. 
we, yeah, we got yeah. into have I got news for you once and nobody knew who it was going to be and it mm. was the first time Bruce Forsyth was on it oh my and god it really just, it was one of the best recordings I've ever been to I'm, I'm actually on video forevermore with my laugh because when he he's trying to read something yeah. and he goes da 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 and I am crying and he looks around <laughs> and he goes he looked at me and he went please this is autocue this is I, I, you know this is satire that was the line <laughs> he was, um, we were all, I want to say we were worried about him, but it was a, it was a very different booking and, and yeah. uh, the BBC insisted on him doing it for various reasons. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure he was, he was he nervous was wearing, about the reaction. Because he hadn't been he, on TV he, for he a was, while. He was very wary and it was before Strictly came back. Yeah. He was very, yeah. he was very wary, but my abiding memory of the afternoon, because mm. uh, I got to know Bruce because I wrote on a couple of series of Strictly, I was, right. the secret, I was a secret writer on Strictly Come Dancing because right. Rob Colley was wearing himself out coming up with two two puns. So they, they <laughs> put me into, into help. So I, I, I've got this abiding memory of sitting in the dressing room with Bruce who just had his vest on and he had sock suspenders on, which I've never seen before. But, but again, Bruce Forsyth is another one of those people. It's like Bob Mugau. You, could, I, I'll listen to Bruce all evening. You, this extraordinary. is Bruce Forsyth. You talk about, but I remember in the afternoon in the rehearsal for for Have I Got News for You, when Bruce came out to check the, the stuff on the autocue and Bruce is going and he was really he said, "Can it get any bigger?" And the autocue guy went, "Okay, any bigger, bigger." And, and eventually the, the autocue guy went, "It doesn't get any bigger." That's the biggest. <laughs> he said, "There's one. It's one word per screen at the moment." Because that's literally. Because it was literally, about, and but then Brucey came out and he was, and oh, could, he was superb. But there's there's a moment, and you you can clock it on the show, and you could certainly clock it in the night because everybody turned up to see this show. The, uh, I don't know if you noticed the, the to the side of the studio, it was rammed because yeah. everybody associated yeah. with the show wanted to see it. Yeah. There's a moment when Bruce comes on, and he he clocks the reception he's getting, and you can see he gets a little bit emotional because yeah. the audience the audience went completely batshit bonkers when they yeah. saw Bruce Forsyth yeah. and he was just I was there <laughs> well, but, but, you remember, but you remember what he was like as well he just played with it all night he was extraordinary I mean, he, I mean, he, I mean he, the wheeled like the curtains a, out and he did the strong man pose and he was I, away he, let me and my audience oh but he was but that's exactly what he was like yeah. let him, and, and I, I've saw when he used to do the, he used to do his own warm up for Strictly wow <clears throat> so he would do an hour before the show started wow 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 and the audience, the audience loved it, and they yeah. loved him. Yeah. I saw him for his seventieth at the Palladium, and he was extraordinary. He was did it? three oh, hours, and he really just song and dance and everything. Yeah. Um, we're running out of time, unfortunately. I, I, I could talk to you all night. I really enjoyed it. I just want to ask you one more thing because uh, one or two more things. Um, one of my comedy heroes, who I never saw live, was Bob Monkhouse. He was a fantastic yeah. comedian, and. Yeah. When BBC Four showed Bob Monkhouse The Last Stand, yeah. there you were in the audience. Yeah. Um, did you play a major part in getting that show together? No, not at all. No. Not at all. Um, it was it was only six months before he died. Yes, yeah. Um, I'm still... I, it, it came out of the blue. I, I, I'm still... I, I love Bob Monkhouse. Oh, I, 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 I met Bob quite one of my first TV sort of panel things Bob was on and we got on well and again I think he liked the fact that I just wanted to hear him talk about the old days and, and he was very kind to me he was very very generous in a way that a lot of his generation of comics were very challenged by us as yeah. comedians yeah. Uh, he wasn't Barry Cryer was another one Bob wanted yeah. to welcome new comics and he said it reminded him of when he was a young comic yeah um, and Bob what People need to know about Bob, and I always used to say this about him. People used to, it's always these smarmy, slick, he's this. And yes, he probably was as a game show host, but as a stand-up, when you see his stand-up shows, my God, what a brilliant stand-up comedian he was. And he showed me some footage of stuff that he'd done in the 60s and 70s at working men's clubs, which was quite political. I wouldn't say it was filth, but it was adult. And he was a brilliant stand-up. And I'm really pleased that he was so pleased that towards the end of his life, People started to rediscover. They got he got the recognition he deserved. But this, the invitation to so it's two thousand three. I think the the invitation came totally out of the blue, and it was uh, uh, I, I had a phone call from my agent saying this, this production company said, "Would you come and be in the audience?" 
And, and it's like, of course it was. And I'm still really proud because on the show, the first thing Bob says as he comes out of the, the dressing room is he says hello to me. Yeah. It's my friend, which is, I was, I'm still really proud of that now. Yeah. It's amazing. Every time it gets repeated, I get um to him. And by sheer coincidence, Ali, my wife, was looking after him that day. And she she told me beforehand how poorly he was. Now we, but the reason we got invited was that he'd had this this idea for a new series for, for BBC One. And BBC One said to him, look, well, here's, here's 50 quid, do a live pilot in a pub or whatever you want to do. And the idea was that Bob would rediscover some of his comedy heroes. Um, so on that show, he had Mike Yarwood on. I was just going to say, yeah. As a guest. And Mike Yarwood was was very nervous and clearly uh, had been drinking and the interview was was fine but it, Mike Yarwood didn't have the same cachet with us as an audience as, yeah. as as Bob so it wasn't a problem so Bob decided to add some value to the night by doing this hour long stand up thing which again was a was a was a tour de force and it's, it's and then sadly it's only six months later that we realised how ill Bob was it's the last time he performed live um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's a star-studded audience, but there's a lot of recognisable people in the audience. And it was, a, it was the most remarkable night. But none of us realised, Richard, how significant it was to become because none of us realised, if we knew it was his last gig, we would never have let him leave the stage. Do you yeah. know what I mean? We would, but we didn't know that. We knew he was ill because he told us, but we didn't know that he, had, he only had months to live. And so it became significant. In, in later years and, and of course it's become a kind of cult TV show now but there was a remarkable atmosphere on the night but it, again I just enjoyed being in the company of other comedians yeah, just relaxing and enjoying but and also because Bob was he could be quite naughty and there was a few people who hadn't who'd been invited that hadn't turned up Jonathan Ross was one of them and Bob just told us some very funny <laughs> Jonathan Ross because <Jared>, like, <laughs> he was quite mischievous <laughs> But his technique was as a oh, because he's one of those. What I found interesting about it, Richard, is that comedians are a terrible audience. You, know, you don't really want. I love watching comedians, but I don't laugh because <laughs> but we we don't we don't tend to because we're you're kind of second guessing you're what, 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 what you are, but you're kind of going, "Where's she going with this joke?" Or what's you, you kind of think about how you would do it, and then yeah. afterwards you say to people. That was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. And they say, you didn't crack a fucking smile. But that's, but, but that, that night with Bob, to watch an, a, a, an audience, it wasn't all comedians, there were other people from the business, but watching an audience of comedians just giving themselves up to the laughter was yeah. was brilliant. And it, and, it, and it was a special night, but it's become... It's become more special since, I have to say. On on the on the on the night, it was brilliant, but since it's become significant. It, well, well, it was, in my view, it was an everlasting tribute to him because mm. it proved. I loved the bit that um, he did the comedy, and then he started talking about his favourite comedians. <sighs> And then he had the interview, and so it was all structured without really knowing. Well, it, well that's, that, that's it, interesting it because great. he he started telling us again. This was because the interview hadn't gone as yeah. well as, as for as long as he wanted, and he started telling us. And there are there are two those because originally after Bob died, his wife insisted on a couple of cuts to the documentary because she didn't want him to appear unkind, but right. which he he was he teased some people, but he wasn't unkind. But he started telling us about his relationship with Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers' mother. And he told us halfway through this that this was the first time he told, he'd told said it out loud. So we're all kind of going, <laughs> holy mother of God, this is quite... This, but I think... I'm glad you, I'm glad you think it's a, a thing, true. Oh, because because it's, it's, it's really good. Had he, had he died five years early, he probably wouldn't have been dismissed. But he was... His, his knowledge of comedy... Yeah. Not, not just his generation of comedy but I think you know it's it's a matter of record now that his his collect he taped everything that was on TV he kept every TV time and, he, and, it, yeah. he, and yeah. he knew and again that was a, another thing in one of the documentaries about his books it was a close up of a, a little cartoon he did of yeah. me and, a, and one of my jokes which is like brilliant but he knew so he's he, all the it turned out that all the people in the audience all the comedians he'd asked for them especially and we that's, only found that out at, at the end of the night. We just thought it was a, a random list of people at the BBC. Yeah. But he, he'd asked for especially. So I was very, I was, I was very proud of that because for all that I've, I started by talking about alternative comedy and how proud I am of alternative comedy, 
I'm also very proud to be part of the history yeah. of you know, like musical and beyond the free, all that sort of thing. I'm proud to be somewhere on that on that that list well, of people. So that yeah. Well it's so well deserved because you are a great comedian. I I have well, never kind of I always look forward when your name's on a bill or uh, when we go and see a show, I know I'm going to have a great time and I laugh consistently at you. Oh, well, thank and, you, Richard. That's kind. Uh, I, think, I think it's great. I've so much enjoyed tonight. Is there is there anything else you'd like to say before you go? Have you got, are you writing any shows? Where can people find uh, you online? Not, not really. You'll see me. Um, <clears throat> I always think it's a bit tawdry to end with... with uh... <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you, can, you can listen to my podcast on yes. uh, Apple. Uh, the one thing I will I will say: Have I got news for you? Starts back soon, and then League of the, But the one thing you will be able to see more of me after when all this is over, I will be doing much more. I want to get into theatre stuff, as I mentioned earlier, but I'm going to be doing much more live work. I'm Brilliant. going to be. Do, I've missed it. I've missed it so much. The, uh, performing. I've done a lot of quiz stuff on Zoom and podcast stuff on Zoom but that gig you saw me a couple of weeks yeah. ago was the first the only gig I've, gig I've done on Zoom yeah, and, it was, yeah, yeah. and I was I was I was buzzing for about an hour afterwards yeah, just be yeah. talking just been out to see an audience but so I will, I, what I will I will end by saying uh, Richard that, that I've spoken to comics who have done this before and obviously you know I've spoken to Jay because you know, you're always there in the front row and, and we we genuinely appreciate the support uh, of, of people like you it, it means it, it, it means a lot to know that it means a lot to people really that we're, it means a lot to know that we're not just whistling in the dark and it because I'm I'm passionate about comedy I love comedy I love the history of comedy I love new comedy I love going to watch comedians still when I think I think the circuit until this interrupted us I think the circuit isn't is as interesting a place as it's been for a long long time there are there are there are a lot of brilliant young comics out there and and, and you know remember we talked about the rose tinted spectacles about yeah. early stand-up comedy for all early stand-up comedy was brilliant early alternative comedy was brilliant there were very few black acts you know, there were very few asian acts there were very few openly gay acts. and now young comedians reflect our society in a way that they've never done before and there's some brilliant there's some brilliant comics out there you know my son being one of them, of course. But he people is, like Rose, he's fantastic. People like, people like <laughs> Rosie, Rosie Jones and Red yeah. Richardson and Maisie Adam, Pierre Novelli. There's some yeah. brilliant, brilliant comics out there. But but all of us who love what we do love audience members who love it as well. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate talking to somebody like you who uh, is as enthusiastic about uh, about what we do as uh, as you are. So well, thank I, you I, so I, much I, for your kind yeah. words and thank you so much for a wonderful interview, a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. Good, thank and you. I wish I'll you every it. success and I will come and see you live again very very soon my friend I'll, I'll make sure there's a, a chair or two in the front room of your in the front room in the front row <laughs> well the front room it might be in my front room Richard. who knows I'll make sure I'll make sure there's a there's a chair with your name in the front room mate. you're very right. kind thank you so much for your time and all the best to you oh, I mean.